0: The most
1: climate-proof
0: city in America. You've done it, Duluth. This is your identity.
1: In 2019, Professor Jesse Keenan produced a branding package for the small city on Lake Superior. His proposals included taglines like, Duluth, not as cold as you think.
0: For anyone familiar with the town, the idea of Duluth as a place to escape to, rather than from, is a bit surreal. Bob Dylan spent his earliest years there. Here's what he remembers about his hometown. The violent storms that always seem to be coming straight at you and merciless howling winds off the big black mysterious lake with treacherous 10-foot waves.
1: But people across the country and the world are already leaving their homes because of climate change. In the coming years, their numbers will increase. The only question is where they will go.
0: Today on the show, we're talking about what it means to call a place climate-proof, and whether those places are ready for all that label entails.
1: Are these cities prepared to welcome new neighbours, some displaced by disasters and others seeking to avoid them altogether? I'm Laura Marsh.
0: And I'm Alex Perrine.
1: This is the Politics of Everything.
0: In January, New York Times reporter Deborah Kamen traveled to Duluth, Minnesota. She wanted to report on people who've moved there to escape the effects of climate change. Duluth's population has been just under 90,000 for decades. But in the last five years, nearly 2,500 people have moved to the former industrial town from all over the country. Almost all of these new arrivals say they have migrated there in part because of concerns about natural disasters and rising temperatures. One person Deborah talked to said she moved her family to Duluth with a Pollyanna ish idea that we were moving to safety. Deborah, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: So tell us about some of the new arrivals that you met in Duluth. What sort of places were they coming from, and why did they end up there?
2: The new arrivals are super diverse. They're coming from places like California, New Mexico, Colorado, anywhere that has really been facing more extreme versions of climate change over the past few years. We're talking wildfires or extreme heat. Mm-hmm. People from there are coming to Duluth to start their lives over in a place that they feel is going to be a little bit, quote unquote, safer as the world gets hotter and weather gets more wacky.
1: If they're looking at the map of the U.S.,
2: what makes their finger land on Duluth? (laughs) So I don't think anyone's finger naturally lands on Duluth. I think you have to put your finger on the map. I mean, I couldn't have found Duluth on a map when I started writing this story. But Duluth has had a lot of attention because there is a man named Jesse Keenan. He is a professor at Tulane. He used to be at Harvard. And four years ago, he created a list of these quote-unquote climate-proof cities based Mm -hmm. on a bunch of calculations that we can talk about. And Duluth was at the top of his list. He even dubbed it climate-proof Duluth, which is very catchy. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it got on people's radar.
0: I generally knew, growing up in Minnesota, quite a bit south of Duluth, I knew it as the sort of place people escaped from, (laughs) the winters especially.
1: Right. I mean, I think I could have told you one fact about Duluth, precisely. And what was it? Bob Dylan is from that. Exactly. But that's not related to climate. So what is it about Duluth's climate that makes it, or its natural features that make it so
2: good? So Duluth sits on Lake Superior which is actually not a lake it's an inland sea and it's freshwater So first and foremost, as we worry about drought and rising heat, Duluth has a really safe, secure source of fresh water that's not going anywhere anytime soon. But then when we think about coastal cities and sea level rise, the way that Duluth is located, it's up high. It's kind of buffeted from sea level change. So you don't have to worry about the water levels rising and eroding any parts of the town that sit on the water the way that other cities that are coastal really do have to worry about now. And then it's a really cold place And really cool places, as the world gets hotter, are going to be more comfortable moving forward. So those three things make it more, quote-unquote, climate-proof. It also doesn't have a ton of people because, like Mm -hmm. you said, Alex, Mm -hmm. it's been a place to escape from. So it has land that people can come to and settle in without the major risk of overcrowding.
0: This is a conversation that I think sometimes tongue-in-cheek but maybe a little bit more serious than we actually think I feel like I've had with friends, you know, over the last few years, like where are we going to escape to basically? Yeah. But yeah, what are some of the other places on that list?
2: So Buffalo is a really, a really popular one, which is also the type of city that like doesn't really come to mind when you think of fun, exotic places you may want to spend the rest of your life in. And Buffalo, unlike Duluth, has really leaned into this label mm-hmm. and they've mm-hmm. marketed themselves as a climate-proof destination and really actually tried to attract new residents based on it. Duluth has kind of done the opposite. They're kind of uncomfortable with this new title that they have. And when I was there reporting, the impression that I really got is they're still trying to figure out how to manage this spotlight that's been thrust upon them. And in general, the Midwest as a whole, and I say this, Alex, you clearly get it as someone from Minnesota and me as someone who grew up in Ohio. The Midwest is cool, like no pun (laughs) intended, as we look at climate change, because it's a place that is the effects are going to be less extreme.
1: You cover a lot of real estate on your beat. What are the challenges for a city like Duluth? if it were to face an influx in terms of housing?
2: There's major challenges and they tend to do with space as well as with the market itself. Obviously, real estate prices operate on the concept of supply and demand. So when Mm -hmm. you have an influx of people coming in, the demand is going to go up. But the supply, unless we start building, is going to remain constant. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, where most of these people are coming from are places where homes are more valuable. A home in California is worth a lot more than a home Mm -hmm. in Duluth, Minnesota. So if you sell your home for a million dollars and you come in and you're competing in a real estate market with people who didn't sell their homes for a million dollars, they mm-hmm. may have sold them for $300,000, mm-hmm. you're going to have a market that suddenly flooded with cash, which makes it really difficult for people who've been living there and saving up for houses for years.
0: And some of those people arriving there, I would imagine, might still be earning their California paychecks.
2: Totally. Right.
0: In the sort of remote work world.
2: And that's another very important point because one of the reasons that Duluth is seeing so many new residents is it used to be you couldn't move from the town you were in because you Mm -hmm. couldn't leave your job or you didn't want to choose from the jobs that were available in a smaller city if your industry, you know, wasn't popular there. That's much less of a problem now. A lot of people can work from anywhere. So yeah, you have people earning more, coming in with more cash and completely upending a market where all the factors that used to exist based on the local economy are kind of irrelevant.
0: I would love to know more. I think you talked to the mayor, who was one of the people who seemed a little bit ambivalent about this labeling of Duluth as climate proof. What are some of the reasons behind that ambivalence?
2: She said something that I really loved during our interview. She said that we need to put on our own oxygen mask first before we put on everyone else's oxygen mask. And Mm -hmm. what she meant by that is it's not that Duluth isn't happy to welcome these new residents. I think on the most part, they genuinely are. The people in Duluth are super friendly. It's a super warm, welcoming city. But they have problems just like any other city. And they have some specific problems that are... Based on their own history, they really were losing population for decades and they have infrastructure that needs to be repaired. So she wants to focus on taking care of the people who already live in Duluth and building up their housing stock, building up their economy, dealing with some initiatives she has related actually to green energy and and climate readiness before they start upending their own priorities to welcome the new people coming in.
0: You mentioned Buffalo as a city really embracing the label, and Duluth, it's obviously not the sort of industrial powerhouse that wasn't decades past, but it doesn't have that same sort of rust belt decline atmosphere that a place like Buffalo, I would imagine, almost desperate for new residents.
2: Well, I think the housing stock in Duluth has not grown in a long time. And a lot of it has to do with the way that people are living now. It used to be that you had larger families right. sharing homes and more people are living alone longer or older, older people are hanging on to their homes longer, which is a trend we see nationwide. You don't see boomers selling for a number of reasons. So the basic number of homes that are available to people in Duluth, whether they're new residents or they've lived there for a long time, is very small. I think it's like one or two percent of the availability of the market is new properties. So they're not anxious for new residents because there's nowhere to put them right now. Right. They're really gonna have to build an investment. In infrastructure before they open those doors if they don't want to have a real squeeze on an already tight market.
0: We're doing this episode because it's it's sort of a fun idea. It's both fun and, and I think deadly serious and sort of terrifying. <laughs> but it's like fun to imagine people going to Duluth as this sort of post-climate change paradise. But in real numbers here, this is pretty small compared to some of the faster growing parts of the country, right?
2: Alex, it's so small that I couldn't figure out what the numbers were for the longest time when I was recording
3: this story. <laughs> and then no, and
2: I I'll walk you through it. So like I yeah. was hearing from all these people, like Duluth is the place. It's this crazy dystopian idea that climate change has gotten so severe that people are just picking up their families and moving to like what can amount to them as the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So I, I went there. The realtors that I spoke to said that 25 to 30% of the people they're selling homes to now are coming from out of state. I talked to dozens of people who've moved there, and then I was looking at the census numbers. And they were tiny. The population of Duluth over the past 10 years Mm -hmm. has shifted by just like a couple hundred. And I was Mm. like, where are all these people? And I couldn't figure it out. And then I had to break it down even further. And I actually only when I looked at the number of new residents from out of state did I understand that there has been die off or people just leaving town that has lowered the numbers. And so it's still not a huge number, but, you know. Two and a half thousand is more than a couple hundred, but it's so minute that it doesn't even register on the census numbers until you really dig at them a little further to figure out where it's coming from, if that makes sense.
0: And knowing the demographics, I would imagine whatever new population is more than offset by the older Midwesterners like retiring to Phoenix as they've been doing for decades and decades.
2: <laughs> and we had a pandemic. That's right. Which also skews the numbers. There's a lot more death over the past years than there used to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Just to make it even more of a depressing conversation. No,
0: I know. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna a lot of wild tone shifts in this one, I think, from <laughs> yeah. from morbid to Tobacco. It's
1: a roller coaster. (laughs) Yeah. It does feel like this is fairly small scale at the moment. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about a future in which very large numbers of people might need to move. And it will presumably affect people who don't have a lot of assets or don't have a lot of choice in terms of where they live and their jobs. The kind of people that you
2: saw moving to Duluth are not quite in that category, right? Choosing to move right now because of climate change Mm. is a privilege and it's people who have the privilege to be able to do so both financially based on the fact that they have education and jobs that are portable, based on the fact that they have support systems that they can either take with them or they don't rely upon so they can Mm -hmm. move. I mean, if you're a single mom and you rely on family nearby to watch your children, you can't pick up and move across the country because you're not going to have that. There is a lot of privilege inherent with the ability to move. And the people I spoke to who've done it are very aware of that as well. Mm -hmm. And there's also this concern that nobody wants to come in to a place that they're choosing to go to as a refuge and then be a gentrifier. Nobody wants to have that role. But it's kind of unavoidable If you're coming in from an economy where your finances go a lot further. So there's a lot of complicated ethical and moral pieces to this. You do cover real estate more
1: broadly, and I'm wondering how much realtors, both in Duluth, but also just more generally, are factoring climate into sales now and also how much banks and lenders are taking this seriously and maybe beginning to drive some of these movements
2: It's starting. It's not at the point that I personally think it should be based on the irrefutable evidence that we have that climate change is happening and it's getting more extreme. But you are absolutely seeing, for example, in California, you can now find that it's just impossible to get wildfire insurance in places where you used to be Mm -hmm. able to get it. And then you have stories like Kim Kardashian and other celebrities hiring their own firefighters during wildfires because they simply have the the resources to take care Mm -hmm. of the problem themselves when you have homeowners who either will lose their homes or they'll have to pick up and move to get out of an area of danger. You also now have insights like Zillow and Realtor.com. There's flood risk ratings and other mm-hmm. climate change ratings that appear on home listings, and that's a new thing that didn't exist until a few years ago. Whether or not buyers are aware of that or looking at it, I don't know, because the fastest selling areas of the country are still the ones that are most at risk. Yeah. So it's the coasts, it's the warm areas, also the places where home prices are the highest, because people are either not aware of it or they don't want to see it. But it's there. The risk is there. It's starting to play into the financial decisions that banks and lenders are making, but very slowly.
0: No, that's really interesting. I think it certainly seems like continued growth in the Sun Belt. I don't know. It seems unsustainable to me, but it has been continuing for a very long time.
2: You know, it's kind of like fast fashion, right? Like we all know that we shouldn't buy clothes that are made in sweatshops and will end up in landfills. We all know that it's better to buy things that are, you know, made more sustainably and might cost more But if you're on Amazon and you see that shirt that's $6.99 and you just want to wear it once, you're probably going to buy it even though you know it's not the right thing. And it's kind of like that with a home too, because if you're buying a home and you don't intend to stay there for the next 50, 60 years, Mm -hmm. you understand, you know, from a philosophical perspective, this may not be the right thing, but also it's your life and you want to enjoy it and you want to live somewhere beautiful. And it's a lot easier to kind of not take those things to heart if you don't feel affected by them immediately. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. What time of year was it when you visited Duluth?
2: It was winter. It was (laughs) winter. How was it? (laughs) So apparently I was there on a warm week. Okay. So I was very cold and I was terrified (laughs) driving. It was super (laughs) snowy and icy and I had not driven in the snow since I was a high schooler in Ohio. Yeah. But I guess I actually had it easy considering because a few weeks later, a few weeks later, it snowed so badly that most of my sources were stuck in their homes. Mm, Oh, wow. mm,
0: Yeah. Now I was going to ask of the people you talked to, how had they enjoyed their first winters?
2: A lot of people (laughs) really love it. Like if you're an outdoorsy person and you're really into snowshoeing and mountain biking and ice fishing, Duluth can be a great place if you like that kind of thing. (laughs) I personally do not like that kind of thing and Duluth would not be the right place for me. But I mean, there's my lead source, one of the guys that I spoke to is from California and he now surfs on Lake Superior because That's wild. Which I also did not know this was a thing, but uh, there's waves on Lake Superior. They're caused by the wind, which is different than waves in the ocean. And there's a surf community that goes out there in these heavy-duty wetsuits, and they get icicles on their wetsuits and in their hair, and -hmm. it's crazy, and they love it. So if you are into that and you're into the thrill, Duluth can totally be a paradise for you. You just have to be the right kind of person. (laughs) On that note. <laughs> yeah.
0: I was going to say, Laura, do you, how does that sound to you?
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a very tough sell to me, but I can <laughs> yeah. I can imagine my husband going all in on the ice surfing. So maybe, maybe it could be a climate refuge for us. Deborah, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, my pleasure. It's been so fun.
0: You can read Deborah Kamen's article, Out of Towners Head to Climate Proof Duluth at The New York Times.
1: We've been talking to people who, for the most part, have voluntarily relocated to avoid climate disasters. But what about people who have less of a choice?
0: After the break, author Jake Biddle joins us to discuss the future of climate change and the displacement it will bring.
1: The future of climate migration will likely be bigger than the couple of thousand people who've moved to Duluth. A recent Census Bureau survey found that in 2022, more than 3 million Americans were displaced from their homes because of natural disasters. More than a quarter of those people were either out of their homes for more than six months or still haven't returned. Jake Bittel's recent book, The Great Displacement, looks at parts of the country where climate disasters have already begun to reshape daily life. He foresees a large-scale displacement of people from the worst affected areas to more hospitable parts of the country. Many of the people who move in the future won't be doing so out of an abundance of caution, but because disaster has already hit. These movements, Jake writes, will be unpredictable, chaotic, and life-changing. Jake, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So your book is called The Great Displacement. When you talk about people leaving their homes and finding new places to live, what kind of scale are you envisioning?
3: Yeah, so are already displacing hundreds of thousands or or millions of people for any length of time each year. And most of those people do end up making it back home. But if even a few tens of thousands per year don't end up making it back to the same places that they lived before, then you're talking about in the single to double digit millions by the mid-century. Most of those movements are over relatively short geographic distances. Even when they're permanent, they're still moving 10 to 15 miles within the same city or within the same metropolitan area. But I think that by the middle of the century, you're going to see probably more of those movements start to be longer distance. It starts to add up and it doesn't look like one coherent sort of movement or march Mm. northward, but it's quite a lot of people. And there's this sort of just element of instability that I think becomes kind of chronic for people who live in areas that are perennially prone to disaster.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, your book covers a pretty wide swath geographically of the US coastal areas, desert areas, areas by rivers that are drying up. Talk us through some of the places that people are increasingly having to leave.
3: Yeah. The two places that have seen the biggest outmigration so far would be parts of the Gulf Coast, where after repetitive shock from hurricanes, the places just sort of empty out because they don't have the infrastructure to rebuild. And California has seen a lot of outmigration because of the chronic stress of wildfires. Not only people losing their homes, but also people just sort of getting fed up with constant exposure to smoke and particulate matter from the smoke. You called your book The
0: Great Displacement often when we hear about people moving for climate change-related reasons, climate migration is sort of the term used. And I guess to me that sort of describes maybe some of the people we were talking about earlier who sort of voluntarily chose to go somewhere else because it seemed like a better place in the future. Why did you decide to use the term displacement instead?
3: Because I think the predominant form of movement is just domestic, involuntary movement from one home to another, to another, to another, potentially back to the original place, because people just don't really have a choice. And those reasons are often physical, because the house isn't there, or they're economic and financial, right? So in housing studies and in discourse around housing, displacement is like a universal term for when somebody gets evicted or when they get priced out of a neighborhood, we call them displaced. And I kind of thought that that was like a more apposite term for what's happening in a lot of the places that are most vulnerable to climate change. It doesn't really look like a voluntary point A to point B migration in most cases.
1: You mentioned that most of the moves, people are making a fairly small move. So if you live in a coastal area that's been flooded, maybe you're just moving a couple of miles inland, higher ground. What kind of factors affect people's ability to actually find that next place they're going to move to?
3: So I think for most people, there's a social and economic logic that makes people want to stay. If you have a job, for instance, or if you have a family, you probably just want to stay relatively close to your family. But there's a second thing, which is equity in your home, if you are a homeowner, and insurance. In a lot of cases, people just If they want to leave the specific house and they get an insurance payout and they can go somewhere else, they have to find something that's comparable in price. So this precludes people from going, Okay, well, I'm in rural Louisiana. I don't want to be here anymore. Why don't I move to Chicago where there's not much risk of civil rights? Because they can't afford it. And the opposite thing happened in California, where people got really fed up with the fires. They sold their homes which are worth a million five or two million and they moved to Boise, much less fire exposure, where home values are much lower. And so they Mm -hmm. could basically have their pick of the litter in terms of the housing market there. So I think that the economic difference between the home that you have, the one that you want, and whether you have any equity at all, is the main driver of movement decisions. And for tenants, the options are even slimmer, right?
0: Yeah, and the factors that go into where people end up are not always totally logical. It reminds me of a story of someone in your book who relocated after Hurricane Katrina and ended up in Tucson, which is hardly a place that will be immune from the future effects of climate change.
3: Right, yeah. Her primary motivation was she just wanted to escape the thing that she had already experienced and that had been deeply traumatic for her, which was hurricane risk. In fact, she was so scared of flooding that she purchased flood insurance in Tucson. In Tucson, yeah. Which, I mean, like, not that you couldn't have a flood if it rained hard enough, but she might be the single customer in the National Flood Insurance Program in Tucson.
1: <laughs> so it seems like a lot of these moves, they're not incredibly calculated or they take only one or two factors into account. And what you can see is instead of a single migration, you're seeing people hopping from one climate disaster prone area to an area that is prone to different types of disasters and so on. So I'm wondering if the movement here is more like lots and lots of hopping around, a process of being displaced more or less continually rather than just a move from A to B.
3: Yeah, I think for the most part, the climate change is usually the main factor in so many leaving a certain place if they lose their home or if it gets too expensive to live there because there's not enough housing because it got destroyed in a fire. But where people end up right now doesn't seem to be predominantly influenced by considerations of climate change. And in fact, it looks like people just kind of start to mimic the existing trends of migration that are independent of climate change. We have a lot of movement into sunbelt states. People want to live in places like Dallas, Atlanta, And so people from the most vulnerable areas like coastal Louisiana, California, they end up when they get displaced by climate change, they just merge onto the highway of existing migration trends. If the South becomes much less hospitable because of extreme heat, which is like a chronic problem, it's not just like once every 10 years, then maybe those places start to look a lot less appealing.
1: Well, it seems like a big element of where people can move is like, where are big companies moving Because if a big company is like, we want to have our headquarters in a city that's going to be fairly insulated from big climate disasters, then there's going to be a lot of jobs there and people can actually move there. But if they're still going to the Sunbelt, then that's kind of where you have to move if you're trying to make a living and these are the industries you need to work in.
3: Right, exactly. Like a bunch of big data centers all opened in Arizona, and that's under the presumption that there's enough water for those. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's, I don't know, that seems so wild to me. that It takes a ton of water and a ton of cooling. Yeah, <laughs> there's an
3: argument that like agriculture, livestock, these industries will shift first because they're extremely exposed to those factors. But there's also a white collar thing where it's like startups who don't have legacy real estate holdings, they might say, well, if we're going to go to Cincinnati, mm-hmm. we're getting a nice tax break. It's a little speculative, but there's no reason to think that wouldn't happen down the road.
0: I think that gets to an important point you make in the end of your book, which is whatever future we're talking about here is probably not going to be equally distributed. That where people end up, you know, there won't always be a lot of choice involved. And it could be a future where the people who can get out to these places get out, but not everyone's going to have that
3: option. Right, yeah, I mean, in general, even independent of climate change, right, like younger, wealthier people are they are more mobile, and again, it's a long way off, but if it ever became the case that a climate resilient city was attractive, I think you would see that city develop along the lines of like Austin or something where it's extremely dominated by wet collar industry with attendant affordability problems for everybody. But then you have the other places where the elderly, low-income people, they don't really have the ability to just move. And they may not want to either. Those places sort of enter a cycle of underinvestment and they get left behind the same way that a lot of Rust Belt cities did.
1: One of the things that I think is often overlooked in broad conversations about climate change is that it's not just going to be a single set of changes. A major part of climate change is unpredictability and increased frequency of severe events that are happening all over the place. Given that unpredictability, what do you think of the concept of a climate-proof city?
3: On paper, there are certain places that, no matter how crazy things get, are probably going to be relatively safe. But on the other hand, any city can be made much more resilient in ways that really matter with enough spending. So even coastal cities, if you're willing to put in the money as like here in New York City, for instance, like there's no doubt that we will because they're just an unlimited appetite to spend on mm-hmm. storm yeah. surge protection, cetera, And you can basically always make those projects pencil when you have the financial district, you know, behind the levy. So That's right. I think it's one thing to look at places that look like good candidates, but with clout and money and an attentive federal government, it's not that we have to write off the places that don't look so good.
1: Right. So it's not like Duluth is going to replace New York.
3: No, I don't think <laughs> any city is going to replace New York.
1: Or D.C., Like, if there's a false sense of security in thinking, well, if I were able to move to Duluth or Buffalo, then climate change won't be an issue for me. When in fact, just this year, we saw people snowed in in Buffalo, unable to leave their homes. No one seemed to really care or come to help them. I mean, maybe it's not about climate change, but it's a severe weather event and it highlights the difficulty of relocating to places like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, in 2021, there was a massive heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, one of the worst this century. And it was in Portland, Oregon, hundreds of people died in Canada too. I think that there's risk and there's risk, right? And it, there's no place, and there never has been, where you can say, I'm insulated from severe weather events, especially not convective storms and flooding, and especially not heat waves. And so I think that perhaps people maybe are getting the wrong idea about what the future of these places is. Like, there's some odd things about branding as a climate proof city, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, cli- what do you mean? How do you define proof? Like, when are you proofed? Like, I think Portland, up until the moment of the heat wave, probably would have said, like, We're pretty resilient to climate change. So I don't think that the climate-proof cities, (laughs) there's a possibility that 50 years down the road, say, oh my, shit, I really wish I wasn't a climate-proof city because this (laughs) comes with all kinds of problems. I mean, there's maybe an upside, right, if you're Duluth, but not necessarily like an unclouded one.
0: I want to get to some of your, I guess, prescriptions. We're talking about resiliency, and we can talk about resiliency in terms of building levees or elevating highways, but I want to talk about what you think the country needs to be doing and what we need to be doing to prepare, not just in terms of infrastructure, but what you think the country owes to the people who are going to be displaced in the future.
3: If you think about this for a while, you start to realize that it's not easy to make a distinction between people who move because of climate change and people who move because of affordability problems or because of the eventualities of life. And I think that if you want to say, well, what should we do for people who are displaced by climate change? Then you really have to ask yourself, what should we do for people who are displaced? You know, period. Mm -hmm. And I think that like... There's a lot of climate-specific solutions, right? There's physical infrastructure you can use to defend places against hurricane risk and fire risk. There's policies like what we call managed retreat in climate adaptation studies, which is like we give people money to move away from the worst affected places. But then there's a whole mess of affordability and displacement and financial kind of immiseration that can really only be solved by tackling the problem of housing. You want to make sure everyone has a safe place to go, That entails a much bigger conversation than just what do we do about people who have to leave Miami. And it's really, really hard to see what a comprehensive solution to that would look like. And you have to spend a lot more money, I think. The Mm -hmm. federal government is really the only entity that has anything like the necessary resources to solve this problem. There's just not any other game in town. Yeah,
0: and we're talking primarily about... I guess, domestic moves within the United States. But the question is, I think, going to only become more urgent about what we ought to do about people being displaced internationally. What are your thoughts on that?
3: I think that the way that we used to think about housing is like, if you're a citizen of the United States and you're from here, then you should get housing because you live here and we'll like try to provide you housing. But then there's a second moral obligation, which is the U.S. and other wealthy countries emit the vast majority of historical carbon. And mm-hmm. to the extent that there's international climate displacement from developing countries, from small island states, from Central America, a lot of that can be laid and has been laid directly at the feet of the U.S. and Germany, the other historical emitters, the United Kingdom. As that burden of migration sort of starts to get shifted across international borders, there's a pretty strong moral obligation that I think more and more people will recognize in very clear terms. That those countries, which are not coincidentally very temperate.
0: Temperate with access to resources. Yeah, right. right,
3: And well-resourced provide housing for the people in shelter and sort of just a better life for people who don't really have a choice. But to come there, you end up kind of in this place of like, you know, the wealthiest and best-resourced countries really need to make sure that the people from other countries and from their own countries who lose their homes end up with safe and affordable shelter.
0: All right, Jake, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much.
1: Jake Bittle's book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration is out now.
0: The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse.
1: Emily Cook is our executive producer.
0: Lorraine Katamatori assisted on this episode.
1: Myron Kaplan is our audio editor.
0: If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is write a review wherever you get your podcasts. Every review helps.
1: Thanks for listening.